T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. Illinois budget and efforts to try to combat gun crimes have been getting most of the headlines out of the state capitol in Springfield, but there are a number of issues there and locally that involve matters of public safety, criminal justice, and civil rights. These are not just urban issues, they're suburban issues too and for people elsewhere in the state, and we're going to talk about those things from that perspective. Hello, I'm political editor Craig Delamore, and this is At Issue. My guest this weekend is an outspoken police official who's making a welcome return trip to our studios. Chief Tom Weitzel is the head of the West Suburban Riverside Police Department. It's a job he's held since 2008. He was assistant chief for about five years before that. He's been with the department since 1984. The last time Chief Weitzel was here, uh, last summer in fact, we were talking about bail reform and other issues of criminal justice. A lot has happened since then. But some of the same issues remain on the table, and I expect we'll touch on several of the new and the old in this half hour. Chief Weitzel, welcome back. Thank you. It's great to be back. Well, one measure that won at least committee approval uh, within the last uh, week or so is Senate Bill 3415. It continues the practice of police collecting information about traffic stops mostly across Illinois. It was championed more than a decade ago by then State Senator Barack Obama. Uh, The American Civil Liberties Union says this kind of data collection helps the public and the police, but the Illinois Association of Chiefs of Police opposes it. Um, Why don't police chiefs uh, like this, uh, this law? Well, let me say that I was actually involved in the drafting of that legislation back when President Obama was here in Illinois. I attended some meetings back uh, back then through the Illinois Chiefs. But what happened when it originally started was that we had to hire personnel to, um, you know, collect the data. So many agencies had to hire civilian employees to do that work. Nowadays, you can purchase computer systems to track that. But one reason that the Illinois chiefs are against it, and probably most chiefs throughout the state, is there was supposed to be a sunset provision if there was not documented racial profiling going on. And all the reports I've seen that have come out on the pedestrian stops, the vehicle stops, have shown no widespread racial profiling by law enforcement. Northwestern University used to prepare the reports, send them out to the state legislators, and they'd send them to the chiefs. And I never once saw any data that said there was widespread racial disparity by police officers committing the traffic stops. And I don't even know what they end up doing with that data. They prepare the report. The report is submitted to our state legislators down in Springfield. You can get it on the Internet. They actually print it out and deliver it to the police chiefs. It's mailed to you. But I've never seen anything that's been produced as a result of that report. Hmm. Um, One of the things the ACLU says is it not only uh, provides police with a sense of what's going on and where there may be some trouble, but if anything, it might also help the public 
to see that either it is or it isn't going on, and that that might be useful as well if if if, if the public could find out. Well, no, things are working pretty well. You know, I, I don't think that that's actually the case. Ma- many times, you know, the officers are required to guess at many of the boxes they have to check in those reports. You're not allowed to ask anybody their nationality, their race. You, you can't do that. So when you're filling out those reports in your squad cars, you're, you as an officer have to guess what somebody is. You're not, you're actually prohibited from walking up and asking them, are you, um, what your nationality is? Cause they have a box that you have to check. And then of course there's the proverbial other. So if you don't know, you're supposed to just check other. So the data that's being produced from that, I'm really not even sure that that's really accurate. And it's a good reflection of who police are actually stopping on traffic stops. Now, and I'm asking this as, as just one question among many, that what does an issue like this, a law like this, say about, uh, if anything, the um, perhaps natural tension between the police and the people who set the rules for policing? Well, uh, the people that are setting the rules for policing, they're not consulting us. So what's happening is that chief executive officers throughout the state, whether that be police chiefs, superintendents, sheriffs, we're being brought in at the end. We're being brought in when this product or this legislation or this requirement is being put upon law enforcement is going to be enacted. And then they bring us in and they say, here, this is what we're going to do. They don't bring us in at the beginning and say, how is this going to affect you? Let's talk about how it practically works. What what kind of data can we actually expect from this? And and, and can you actually do this, especially in small, small suburban communities? Do you have the funding to do this? If not, is the state going to fund it for you? I can tell you without question, the state's not going to fund anything for us. These are If we are getting something put upon us, it's an unfunded mandate. Hmm. Uh, well, let, let's talk about some of the overall issues that do concern police in the suburbs who don't have the thousands of officers and uh, more extensive resources of the, your, your urban neighbors. And what, what, I mean, what are some of the things that are either keeping you up at night or keeping you traveling to Springfield? Well, there's a lot of legislation in Springfield that I would consider to be anti-law enforcement. And there is some bills that they're putting upon us that uh, will require us to expend dollars and, you know, many municipalities right now, for example, I'll just go back to the body cameras. It's not mandated in Illinois that every law enforcement agency have that. And one of the reasons is it's very expensive. Not only are the cameras expensive, the real the real expense there is in the servers and the data that you have to hold and how long um, you're, you, you hold those uh, videos, who produces them, re- uh, meeting the FOIA requirements under the law is very expensive because municipalities have to buy software in order to redact certain things that are in the audio and video that the public's not allowed to see. So there is a lot of these mandates or requirements being put upon us that they don't ask us about, they don't ask about funding, and they don't give us any funding for it. I'm sure that surprises nobody that down in Springfield, they're not offering up dollars for these programs because the state has its own financial uh, problems. So while while there are legislation that's being enacted and being uh, put into service, for a better word, it's not, we're not being given the funding. It is solely on the local municipalities to get the funding for any of these programs. 
Do you have cameras? Do you have body cams in uh, Riverside? We do not. We have squad car cameras, but we do not have body cameras. And are you finding that that's the the, the rule more than the exception for a lot of suburban departments? Do they at least, uh, do most of your colleagues uh, at least have uh, car cameras? Yes, Dash I cams? would say that almost all municipalities have car cameras. Body cameras, no. They're not... It's starting to come in, but there, no way do is there a large influx of the body cameras going into uh, municipal law enforcement agencies because of the expense and the FOIA requirements. And uh, there's just there's a lot of issues. In fact, I saw a report come out of Washington from an organization that said that, that the body cameras were not doing what intended, that the individuals that wanted the body cameras when the when it was really being pushed three to four years ago that wanted it after um, basically the Ferguson, Missouri uh, incident that they thought that would capture everything and you'd get all the audio and video that it's not producing what it was thought or intended to produce. And that's because body cameras are like any other camera. You know, they, they wiggle, uh, they, they, you don't get clear pictures all the time. Officers are required to turn it off sometimes when they go into private homes, unless you have permission from that person, you certainly can't have the audio on that's eavesdropping. So there's a lot of requirements that we have to comply with that maybe isn't giving the end result that some would like. Hmm. Well, let's turn. Well, first off, I want to ask you before I turn to issues that I think are interesting. You said that you thought that there are some uh, pieces of legislation that are anti-police. Give me an example of something that you are concerned about uh, that's before the lawmakers. There's two I'm really concerned about. One is is totally uh, probably down the street already, but I'll go with the first one, and that is that there's a proposal to eliminate school resource officers and replace those dollars that are being spent on school resource officers with therapists um, that would assist in school settings. And my response to that is both are needed. But to eliminate school resource officers and take that funding and put it into school psychologists or school social workers or therapists and then take those dollars away from school resource officers totally, which would be eliminating the program, is ridiculous. I am not saying that the other isn't needed. They're both needed in some capacity, but there's no way that our state legislators should entertain eliminating the school resource officer program. I would think that that proposal would lose some steam because of things like the Parkland shooting and other uh uh, school shootings and all of the attention that's now being given, uh, I, I would suspect that there would be people who would say they would rather see a trained police officer be the person with a gun rather than arming teachers. Absolutely. And and I actually have a proposal. I wrote uh, Senator Durbin, oh, probably two months ago and asked them to see if we could adopt federal legislation to make school resource officers training the same throughout the United States. It's currently not that way. But I would like to see the same training. I'd like every school to have a school resource officer who's in uniform because that varies. Some school districts and some police chiefs like their officers in plain clothes. Some like them in suit and ties. Other like them in uniform. I'm of the belief when you walk into a school, if you have a school resource officer, you should know that's a police officer. They should be you know, easily recognizable and in uniform. That's not, there's no state mandates or there's no federal mandates around that. So I, I would like to see the school resource officer 
program even expanded and have strict requirements for training uh, and, and appearance of what those school resource officers look like when they're on duty. You said there were two uh, things The cannabis. You. So I've been a long proponent of... Oh, see, I was going to talk to you about that, too. The cannabis, <laughs> it, it, it is um, out the barn, that's for sure, and everybody's jumping on that wagon. We're talking about legalization of, of not, medical marijuana is already Correct. legalized, so we're talking about recreational marijuana. Right. And, and there's a lot of misinformation out there. Everyone I've talked to and every meeting that I've attended there's it surrounds around one thing and it's dollars. When I go to these cannabis meetings for making recreational cannabis legal in Illinois, it's always about the dollars. Nobody's talking about impaired driving through drugged driving. They're not talking about, um, you know, the manufactured delivery of cannabis, um, which is still a, a federal crime and we still enforce at the state level. But it is all about the dollars. And not that I don't understand that state of Illinois is in need of revenue. I, I understand that. But the way things are going nowadays at some of the meetings that I go to, I sit back and wonder if we're going to try to decriminalize crime. Because all they do is talk about, about cannabis and how it will um, not give individuals uh, criminal records, which is actually false. Most municipalities in the city of Chicago, if you have 10 grams or under, they're already putting that on a local ordinance. Um, they're, not get, they're not fingerprinting and mugging individuals for that. The only ones that are getting criminal records are individuals that are being arrested for large-scale cannabis operations where you're arresting somebody for manufactured delivery to someone else. And that, the personal possession of cannabis is almost always going on some type of local ordinance citation. But now, is it not... Um, helpful for the police if that trade, even the, the, the dispensing of it, the, the selling of it, becomes regulated. And yes, taxed, and there's the money part, but would that not reduce the amount of, of crime in terms of, I mean, I mean, a lot of crime has to do with either selling or stealing uh, marijuana. I don't think so. I think here, take this for example. So it, recreational cannabis is legal, right? You're going to the park with your family. You and your wife are in the park. You're with, you're with the, you have your kids in the stroller and you're playing on the swing set. You want individuals to be able to sit down on the park bench next to you and be able to smoke cannabis freely while the kids are playing in the park. I mean, isn't, isn't there also a quality of life issue we should be talking about when it comes to uh, legalizing cannabis? What, what is being called recreational cannabis. And, you know, that's a term that's used by proponents of it purposely. They, they want to call it recreational cannabis because they want to get the term like it's friendly and it's open. And all, every time I, I hear somebody, they don't talk about just cannabis or smoking marijuana. They always use the term recreational cannabis, which I don't even know what that means. But that's a term that's being put out there. So it's, it's, it's more adaptable to the public. Well, and it's it's getting high, and but now you did talk about driving, um, as I have read the proposed laws, uh, wouldn't driving while high uh, be a crime, just like driving under the influence of uh, alcohol? It would be, and it wouldn't be. It's complicated. So in Illinois, you have to have a certain amount of cannabis in your system. It's not zero tolerance anymore. So when they passed the uh, medical marijuana, 
you could have up to like five neograms of the cannabis or the THC in your system before you could be arrested for DUI under the drug driving statute. However, Illinois has no roadside device to measure drug driving. In fact, there's no such device certified in the state, in the United States. There are companies that are trying to manufacture uh, a roadside device that could measure the amount of cannabis or drugs you have in your system. We do have that for alcohol. They're called portable breath testers. Officers can administer those on the street. There's no such device. So it would be very difficult for us to make a drug driving arrest based on our, what the current statute and the current um, climate is here in Illinois, with one exception. If you have a fatal accident, um, we can bring individuals to hospitals for blood and urine. But that's a very time-consuming process. So on a regular straight drunk driving or drugged driving arrest, that's not going to be possible. You're listening to WBBM News Radio's At Issue. I'm political editor Craig Delamore, and we're talking about criminal justice issues with suburban Riverside Police Chief Tom Weitzel. Um, let me ask you about DUIs in general. Uh, is, there, is there anything that departments like yours can do to better deal with DUIs? I know we, uh, you were on our air not long ago because uh, Riverside arrested a woman you called one of the worst DUI offenders in the United States. Clearly, this is a problem that is not going away and doesn't seem to be getting a whole lot better. No. You know, the, one of the issues is it's, it's socially accepted to drink and drive, and the court systems certainly don't view it as a violent crime. Um, and, and I don't think the public views it as a pri- uh, violent crime, unless, of course, you're a victim or your family are. But the, the, drunk driving is something that happens every single night. There's a national statute. Uh, report that came out that said on a Friday and Saturday night between eight o'clock at night and five in the morning, one out of every 10 motorists that passed you on the roadway is legally intoxicated. Is there any way law enforcement could remove all those impaired drivers from the roadway? No, it's impossible. So what really needs to happen is our court system needs to take it more seriously. There needs to be alcohol follow-up. There needs to be mandated court alcohol intervention because what we're seeing more and more is repeat offenders. It's not uncommon to arrest somebody now that has four, five, six prior DUI arrests and convictions, and they just keep on driving. And we, in my agency, we do everything possible. We seize your car. We, we file seizure paperwork against it and hope that the court gives it to us. If the court gives awards us the car, we sell it and use it for those dollars that are used for DUI prevention. But they just get right in another car and drive. And if you take away their license, they drive without licenses. Isn't that right? Oh, yeah. There's hundreds of thousands of driving while licensed, suspended, revokes, arrests made every year where the, the basis for those suspension or revocation is based on DUI arrests. Well, I suppose that means that's a subject that we're going to have to talk about a lot more in the future. Another one is bail. Uh, I know, and you've probably, uh, if, if anything, made your name uh, for in, in talking about this issue. But Governor Rauner has signed criminal justice reform legislation that has as its intention to uh, uh, that there are too many people in jail for minor drug offenses. Uh, it seems that conservatives and liberals are joining together on this. You've still got some concerns. I do because there is no really set uh, protocol for bail. So there's supposed to be here in Cook County, there's a, a process that the judges uh, follow that was widely reported that the chief judge had issued a, 
uh, memorandum to his staff or his I judges. probably have a copy of it somewhere. And, and uh, I'm not sure that that, you know, that's getting what we need to get because you need to look at, certainly they don't want to look at people's criminal history. Well, you have to, you have to look at people's criminal history as to whether they're going to show up in court. Have they jumped a bond before? Have they, they, um, what are the ties to the community? Do they live in the community? What's the availability for them to flee? Um, setting reasonable bond. I'm for that. Setting I bonds, which are commonly referred to as a, a signature bond or putting people on electronic monitoring is only goes so far. In fact, the sheriff's office just recently said they didn't have enough staff to monitor the amount of individuals that are being put on electronic monitoring by the Cook County court system. So who, who really is following them? So is, is the solution letting fewer people out or is the solution making the system support the, uh, the, th- standards that they are now setting for when people can be freed. No, I think it's supporting and enforcing good, solid bail procedures and um, having good data when you come into bond court, knowing individuals' criminal history, knowing their where they live, knowing their, their previous bail jumping, and taking into consideration the crime. I mean, we just, our neighboring community just had a carjacking the other day where a chase went into the city of Chicago. They made an arrest. He was a juvenile. He was bringing, he went, was held over for juvenile bond court and he was released the next day. And these are, the, the carjackings are extremely violent uh, situations. So I know it's a little different when we're talking about juveniles than adults, but w- these carjackings that are being committed throughout the metro Chicago area are mostly being done by juveniles. But if they're holding a gun, it, does it make a difference? No. Sometimes they're holding a baseball bat. They've hold guns. They've hold knives. Um, they've, you know, they've had shootouts with individuals, or they've had shootouts with the police. They certainly do not surrender. I'm sure that you followed. Many of them are in high speed chases, and they're not. What's happening is these kids are committing these carjackings to go commit more crimes. And two or three days later, if they don't get caught, they dump that car and they carjack another one. And it's this never-ending circle. Well, let me ask you about another headline issue. uh, And that is uh, what has come to euphemistically be called uh, the sanctuary cities and that kind of thing. Mayor Emanuel likes to call it welcoming cities, uh, so everybody has euphemisms going on. But what is your position on alerting immigration authorities and holding people if they're, if these people you might have arrested on a minor offense might be undocumented immigrants? We don't notify ICE. So my own agency, we, don't, we do not, uh, if we arrest somebody on a minor offense or a traffic offense or a misdemeanor, and we're, we're notified that ICE wants them for another crime. Unless ICE gets there, why we don't hold them any longer than we normally would any criminal. So, for example, if it takes two hours to process a drunk driver, we release them on bond when they're allowed to be released. We do not hold prisoners for ICE. Now, do you consider, I mean, you know that the, the White House would probably consider that uh, defiance. Do you consider that defiance, or are you more on the side of... of um, the mayor of Chicago and frankly, even, you know, the, the Illinois legislature and I suppose the governor too. No, I'm more on that side. I'm more on the side that we don't hold for ice. If ice wants their prisoners, my opinion is they should give us an arrest warrant. The detainers are not significant. Every other law enforcement agency in the United States 
has to go in front of some judge or magistrate to get a warrant. If ICE wants somebody, come to the Riverside Police Department with a warrant signed by a judge, and we will cooperate with you. Outside of that, we're not. Well, let me uh, talk about uh, one another issue, uh, and we talked about this last time a little bit, uh, and that's police accountability. Now, obviously, Chicago, big, big deal. There's going to be a consent decree, probably, uh, that will be enforced by a federal court. But it's also it also has to be an issue at times in the suburbs. How can people in the suburbs deal with any complaints if they think there might be power that's being abused out there? And we're not saying that, I mean, I think it's the case in the suburbs as it is in Chicago, that the overwhelming majority of police are doing the job the right way. But what do people do in a smaller area if they believe the police are not? And most suburban municipalities, they can come right in the police station and file a complaint. Most agencies have it available in their lobby or on their websites. They can go right onto the local municipality website and file a complaint against an officer. It's fully investigated by the municipality. And in many times, if it's something that um, the chief thinks that another agency should investigate, we will give that to another agency. In, in my position, I would give that to the Illinois State Police Public Integrity Unit if I thought it was something that an officer was to allege to have committed a criminal act, for example, um, on or off duty. But any, any resident that has a concern or an actual complaint against an officer, we have an actual form they can come in, fill out. Uh, it's also available right on our website, and it's, uh, it's investigated. Now, what if I'm one of those people who thinks that all, I mean, because your, your department what, has not like 19 sworn officers. Correct. Uh, if I'm thinking, this is like a club. These guys are all know each other. I'm not going to walk into that police station. And then I'm a, I'm a marked man if I go in there and complain about a popular police officer. Where do I go? Well, I would, if you didn't feel comfortable in coming to the Riverside Police Department, maybe you should go to the Cook County State's Attorney's Public Integrity Unit. You should go to the, you could go directly to the Illinois State Police on your own. I mean, they, you could go to a district and, and, and say that you wanted to, you know, you didn't feel comfortable with the Riverside Police, so you wanted to file a complaint. Or maybe you could go to the uh, Cook County Sheriff's Office. Um, he, the Sheriff Dart has offered in the past to conduct uh, internal investigations or integrity investigations. Um, if your agency so desires it, you can actually have them do it. But if a resident wanted to do that and felt more comfortable, I would have no issues with that. Wherever they feel they're most comfortable is fine by me. And I just wanted to make establish that uh, in case people were wondering. Last question, and we only have about, ooh, maybe uh, less than a minute. A little bit more than a minute. Anyway, uh, are there some trends that you are encouraged by going on at the state and or local levels? Yes, um, there, there is. Um, so some of the legislation coming out of Springfield has been positive lately. I think there's been more open communication locally. I used to have issues with the Cook County State's Attorney's Office, mostly on policy. It was never a personal issue. Uh, I think the Cook County State's Attorney's Office has reached out to local law enforcement leaders um, recently much better. The communication has been much better, in my opinion. We're still not always going to agree, but I think they're coming to us first instead of bringing us in at the end. And I find that to be very positive. Well, that is uh, that is excellent to hear. What about? Uh, I mean, uh, are there things you're seeing in 
maybe in the officers that you're hiring? I mean, are you getting more younger people or, uh, you know, are people starting to look at the profession as something that, or a more diverse department? Absolutely. So this past weekend, Riverside did our exam and we have two openings and we had over 180 applicants. So the bad press that law enforcement is gaining throughout the United States is not deterring people from coming to our profession. In fact, I think we're getting more people that feel that they're, the media is attacking law enforcement and yeah, when we interview them, they want to they want to do good. They want to show that they're going to do good. We're having much more diverse. Um, this last round that we interviewed, uh, we probably had the most diverse 180 candidates I've ever had. There's a, a lot more females coming into our profession. They're all college educated these days. They're coming to us with four year degrees. Some military personnel are coming right out of the military and applying for jobs. So I'm not, I'm not one of the ones that says that law enforcement is having a hard time recruiting from my perspective where the recruiting is going excellent. And that's going to be the final word. That is Riverside police chief, Tom Weitzel. Thank you for coming in again. Thank you. Uh, to our listeners, if you'd like a copy of this program or just to hear it again, please visit our website. That is WBBMNewsRadio.com. You can also find our podcasts on Radio.com. I will be back next week with another edition of that Issue, and I hope you'll be listening. Until then, I'm Craig Delamore, News Radio 780 and 105.9 FM. We really need new phones. T Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling accounts to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com.